Today I'm speaking with Peril Wozakowski, a graduate from NYU School of Business and a multifaceted portfolio manager. Peril developed a platform to manage portfolios and he was awarded Risk Magazine's Credit Portfolio Manager of the Year three times. You can read more about Peril in the uh, description of the podcast and you could also look at his many articles on LinkedIn. Peril and I will be discussing current market conditions and how those are affected by Fed actions. I hope you like it. I've uh, introduced um, Peril already and uh, I, I thought that uh, since uh, we're both from, from the credit world one way or the other, um, you while you were at Deutsche Bank and me at BNP Paribas, I thought it would make sense for us to you know, discuss our experience and, and, and I think you had some thoughts uh, on risk. Uh, I've read some of your articles uh, that are also published in, uh, in LinkedIn um, and uh, it would make sense to, 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 to you know, maybe share your views with, uh, with our audience um, a bit uh, this morning. So, you know, go ahead, let me know what, what you're thinking, what are some of your views. Yeah, good morning, Patrick. Um, yes, good yeah, morning. Well, for uh, inviting uh, inviting me to, to, to the podcast, um, um, yes. Yeah, so uh, you know, having having observed, lived in, in a credit world for you know, longer than I care to, to remember, um, you know, I think we, we 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 ought to acknowledge that we live in a very special period of time that um, it, that doesn't really have much precedence in in, in history. And I think it's going to have pretty significant implications going forward. Obviously, that is all involving um, this extraordinary central bank uh, intervention pretty much globally um, uh, ever since the last crisis in in 2009. And um, because it's been going on for so long, even though it was supposed to be temporary, um, I think the implications are pretty significant to um, uh, behavior of investors as well as their expectations. I think that uh, this uh, this period of uh, of, uh, of security and uh, and insurance, if you may, that has been provided by central banks, has sort of dulled some of the. Uh, um, uh, impulses that uh, investors would uh, would be on the lookout more so than they perhaps are, but anyway. So um, just just put, putting market conditions in in a context, I think this is, is is really important. So we've seen obviously significant rally in risk assets across the board, right? So whether it's equities, whether it's credit, um, and in in any, in any form. Um, and whatever the liquidity could flow in. Um, uh, however, um, I think the significance of this particular timing is that we are, I think, reaching um, the apex, if you may, of, uh, of the cycle. And uh, I think we have a three major pivots uh, that I'm trying to think about um, that are pretty significant. One is uh, the rates pivot. Um, I think we've had extraordinary 30 years uh, of rally in risk-free rates here in the U.S. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say that uh, it's, it's probably 
not going to rally for another 30 years going going forward. Um, not necessarily advocating for a significant uh, sell-off in rates, but I think that um, uh, rates are probably more likely to be uh, inching higher from here than not um, over over a, a longer to mid-term type uh, uh, scenario. Um, secondarily, credit cycle um, is seems to be seems to be already mature and late, if you may, right? Um, well, what does it really mean? Well, the, the average length of a credit cycle is something in the context of seven, maybe eight years. We, we've hit that eight years since the last <clears throat> um, spike in, in defaults. Although this credit cycle happens to be somewhat different, I think the excess liquidity in the markets um, have, has allowed um, many borrowers in, in the corporate world to especially the, the 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 ones on the on the margin of of survivability, if you may, um, to refinance and prolong their their life, uh, whereas uh, in normal times and uh, normal um, uh, liquidity or capital allocation cycles, those would be already out of business. <clears throat> now, mind you, that this credit cycle. Uh, some call it late. Maybe I would say it's, it's mature and ready to uh, to start deteriorating, um, uh, or if it's already not deteriorated somewhat, um, is being accompanied as well with um, uh, uh, tights, almost historical tights in in credit spreads. So there is a significant asymmetry uh, potentially going forward for risk products in in credit space, um, where the upside is from the spread and from credit itself is probably limited um, and and uh, and the downside is probably significantly uh, more uh, um, more pronounced um, third major pivot that I'm thinking about is uh, central bank policy um, you know just recently uh, the Fed announced um, a gradual retrenchment from the markets and shrinking of the balance sheet <clears throat> I think this is significantly um, it's very important. I think people should pay a lot of attention to it because ultimately this is really the major force that sort of allowed the entire spectrum of risk assets to be repriced over time. So um, if you take those three pivots, right, um, you think about them in, in aggregate. Um, not that long ago, they were all pointing to one direction, i.e. improvement in, in risk assets, uh, if in fact those are in pivots and are going to reverse, um, the true will be also for risk assets to point to repricing lower, kind of across the board. So, Pero, um, to, does that make sense? To um, so to 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 resume and uh, to explain to maybe to our audience, which could be varied, and, and making sure they they grasp the final point of what you are expressing. First of all, you're implying that we should really take in consideration more the central bank impact um, that has been unprecedented. Uh, as, as, I mean, there's been a lot of research done, a lot of um, papers written about returns, about um, averages and but um, I, I may tend to agree that I haven't seen too many discussions having to do uh, 
you know, including in, including the central bank um, impact over the past several years. Um, lots of research has been done on equity and returns and, and how everything um, works in terms of you beating or not beating the market, but uh, it was all about valuation. I'm not so sure a lot has been done uh, with liquidity, as, as you mentioned. And then, of course, you mentioned the three-prong, the rates, the credit cycle, and the central bank. And just to, for our audience, you, you, you're implying that with uh, credit spreads being so tight, should we get it wrong, then we would expect, obviously, spreads to widen and, obviously, the value to drop precipitously. Right. Whether precipitously or not, it yeah. has to be seen. But I, I think we've enjoyed essentially a continuous improvement in prices and, and tightness in spreads over a prolonged period of time, really as a result of uh, mainly, in my mind, uh, central bank uh, continuous support for the markets um, and somewhat from, I suppose, the economic recovery. Um, but I think in that order, I think that it was the central bank intervention and continues, uh, continued support of the markets that uh, allowed for those uh, risk assets to improve. But I actually I will get to this point in, in a very specific way when we talk about risk transmission mechanism. I will explain how central bank intervention actually affects stocks, bonds and, and all other assets. Um, <clears throat> maybe I should actually get right to it at this moment. Um, so imagine, right, for sake of argument, three major central banks in the world, uh, U.S. Federal Reserve Board, Bank of England, perhaps uh, European Central Bank and, and Bank of Japan, right? Uh, those three um, make rates on their... Um, essentially squeeze rates down to zero on, uh, on, uh, on the respective sovereign bonds. What does it really mean, right? It means that big big part of the investable asset class that normally traditionally investors um, with all kinds of safe, dedicated money would invest in is no longer available to them because nobody is going to really buy zero-yield instruments, right? So, but this money has to be invested someplace. And that means that these investors have no choice, but they have to migrate to other uh, yielding <clears throat> instruments. And on a risk scale, the next best thing, essentially, is the upper part, the, the higher quality credit. So as a result, all these investors are starting to buy um, uh, large amounts of, uh, of, of uh, high quality uh, corporate bonds. And uh, as a result, obviously, they, they, they um, uh, put upward pressure on prices and, uh, and squeeze yields and spreads um, and create massive demand for that paper. Now, considering the size of sovereign versus the corporate credit markets, obviously, uh, corporate credit markets is, uh, is smaller. So that large uh, demand for, for, those, um, uh, for those securities uh, it, it sort of starts to overwhelm it. Now, in response to that demand, the corporates um, actually respond with um, uh, respond with uh, significant supply. So, 
as, as long as the money is being offered to the corporates at very cheap levels, corporates, whether they need it or not, they're probably going to likely take it, right? So they issue more and more bonds uh, in order to satisfy the demand and get as, as cheap of, uh, of money as they can get. Now, what do they do with the money, right? Uh, the experience over the last several years is that they, uh, they actually spent the money on uh, uh, levering up the capital structure. Well, that means essentially they keep buying back their own shares uh, in the open markets. They pay dividends and, and otherwise essentially benefit the, the stockholders. Now, um, so if you really think about this, uh, this process taking place and being there for, say, five, six, seven, eight years, whatever the, the period of time was, um, the corresponding performance of the stock market, right, has been pretty stellar, in fact. Um, and if you, <clears throat> if you really acknowledge that a lot of that performance wasn't organic or, or, or uh, driven by improvement of earnings or corporate performance in general, but rather by stock buybacks and, and, and other um, capital structure uh, uh, rebalancing, you, you would have to think that in reverse, if, if, if let's just say the demand for corporate bonds and otherwise uh, for, for, uh, for yielding um, corporate paper is going to taper, then that process may reverse. So we actually don't know how much of uh, the stock market performance uh, is attributed to the money flows be between the central banks all the way down the capital structure, but intuition tells us that it's pretty significant, right? So. We, we, we can probably safely say without central bank intervention into the sovereign markets, uh, we probably wouldn't see stock markets perform as they had. Well, that's quite interesting. You're basically implying that what's holding out the market is not so much uh, what uh, you know, we would usually think of as uh, you know, earnings and expectation for the future but you seem to imply that the market is artificially propped up in some fashion because of the, um, the central bank intervention. That is... Uh... Well, yes, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that compared to the past periods where central bank intervention wasn't as much of a factor, um, the performance of stocks relied mostly on more organic performance of, uh, of the corporations. Mm -hmm. However, in this time around, we have this significant factor of money flows that continue to go down capital structure and wind up mostly benefiting um, equities, yes. It's interesting you say that because I, I looked at something very recently, uh, I guess it was a comment from one of the um, uh, fund managers, and, and basically they were saying, you know, we. The issue that we're having is that um, we have uh, so much money coming in uh, that even though the story is uh, that we have to tell uh, investors is, listen, we are the whole time high. Um, we pro the economy is not going to grow beyond 3% unless a huge amount of tax cuts. Um, and a uh, fair amount of uncertainty out there. And yet, and yet, uh, money keeps pouring in and they need to keep investing it. So the issue that they're having is this, this too much money. So, so that, would, that, that would kind of relate to what, in terms of what you're saying, in terms of the amount of cash coming in or equity coming I mean, cash coming into the equity market or to the markets in general. So I would tend to agree with that. 
Right, and and you know to add to it, uh, there's a behavioral component in in this whole thing. So if if uh, you create a environment that is reasonably stable over a long period of time, even if it's artificially propped up, right? Let's just say central banks continue to buy risk assets, right? And if they do it long enough, um, I think that investors essentially assume intuitively that this is the new normal, right? And uh, they don't even consider, um, uh, it, at least for the, for the near term, that this may reverse, especially abruptly, right? That means that Look, look, look at, at, at risk markets, what, what it really means. For example, look at where, where the uh, volatility index, tradable volatility index VIX is at the moment. Um, you know, there are structural issues why the spot VIX is, uh, is low that we can, we can talk probably another time. But let, let's just say it appears that selling volatility is really a new carry trade, right? And why people do sell volatility? Because it never goes up, right? If you sell volatility, all you're going to do is just collect carry. Nothing is going to happen um, other than you make money, and then you sell volatility again, right? And just continue to do it um, because there is there is no risk, there's no punishment. There's every time volatility uh, pops up for one reason or the other, it's just new opportunity to sell it higher because it's going to go lower, right? But that's <clears throat> that obviously is um, is one example of uh, of something that we haven't seen in the past, right? So. In, in the past, we would think volatility inside of 10, VIX under 10 would would signal significant complacency and almost imply um, near-term disruption in uh, in a market of some sort. That hasn't been true lately because, for one, um, you know, central bank money flows continue to kind of uh, uh, taper volatility. But two, people's behavior, investors' behavior is... Um, is uh, essentially changed uh, compared to what it was in the past, and they feel safer and better, whether that's true or right uh, or not. Yes. So, so another point that you're making, which is interesting, and it's uh, the, the, the behavior of the investor has morphed, over time, so you have the, all the component. I mean, between the you know the central bank, that is, uh, we have to look at it differently. Now we have to think about behavioral, and I think uh, you you wrote an article about that. I think a year ago on behavioral, the component of the market. So you got those two components out there that really no one has really looked at it in great details. So you think that uh, we are exposed to some systemic uh, risk because of now that the, the, the central bank is pulling out? Um, how do you think um, it's going to represent itself? Is that gonna, how is that going to, to manifest itself? Right. So, so um, it's a good, great question. Uh, you, you may infer from what I've been saying that I uh, expect some kind of Armageddon. Um, what I basically try to make, I'm trying to make a point here that what we've seen over the last five or, or, or eight years is not what we're going to be seeing in the next five or eight years, right? Absent and or in a process of reverse um, of excess liquidity by central banks, different market mechanisms will, will kick in place 
and uh, and I think that will have significant implications for how investors uh, should manage their portfolios and their risk. Um, and uh, now whether that's going to be um, you know a pandemonium sell-off and so on, I, I really couldn't tell. That's that really is maybe initially so, but I think that the conditions are not indicative of uh, of massive sell-off. But I think that we are very ripe for um, repricing risk assets lower, if you may. I think that that would be probably a safe thing to say in my mind. So um, what, what, what does it really all mean? Well, first and foremost, I think people should kind of step back and think about <clears throat> risk assets in general, not equities on their own or credit on their own or whatever, right? Um, it, it's all connected. I, I very frequently come across uh, people in various market segments as if they exist and talking as if they existed uh, in isolation, like equities, for example, especially, you know, in, in a realm of quantitative approaches, right? Um, people usually take, you know, long sets of, of price data or some, some other data related to, to equities on standalone basis. They analyze it and detect trends. Now, those themselves don't necessarily, uh, in a short period of time, they may be right, but in a longer period of time, they don't necessarily account for the risk transmission mechanisms through the capital structure, right, that we talked about moments ago. <clears throat> so I think these are the dangers in that. But all in all, the way I try to think about this is credit as a central uh, risk assets um, across the board. Credit, in fact, if you really think about it, right, is the largest significant risk asset in the entire uh, in the entire market, whether it's a consumer credit, commercial credit, corporate credit, or government credit, right? If you aggregate all all this together, I think there is no larger market out there. <clears throat> that really means that um, whatever happens in credit permeates to and and could potentially overwhelm everything else. So, for good measure, if someone is an, a, you know, an equity trader or, or maybe you know, commodities or maybe any other market out there, it's probably good measure to look at credit and really pay attention to it because this is where things start to deteriorate first and when they start to heal first as well, right? So, you know, best example from uh, the, the 07, um, 08 period, it was credit that actually started cracking up um, in, in 2007, maybe even late 2006. And yet, equity markets continue to rally. Those of, uh, of us that were actually in the middle of, of credit markets and paid attention, we actually had a, you know, a, a pretty good look and, and, and created some you know, expectations, and, and, and which worked out pretty well. So uh, that's the general advice. Credit is probably where you start looking um, at, at general risk appetite. Um, so implications for um, for the investors and uh, and portfolio managers. Well, let's just think about what it means. If the rates are going higher and and spreads in credit are going wider, um, it has significant implications for uh, the fixed income market and significant implications, especially for the fixed coupon part of the. Uh, um, of the fixed income market. And that means 
you no longer want to be just long those assets because in face of uh, yields and spreads going wider, the prices of those assets will, will deteriorate. So what I mean by this is uh, it is going to be obviously not a straight line. It's going to be some kind of zigzaggy kind of you know, performance line. Um, and this will require um, capacity to manage the asset class from the long side as well as the short side intermittently. I think that um, we're and, – and managing for total return, um, i.e., between – all the carry coupons and and general price performance for the period. Um, so the, the the bond or stock picking alone is probably not going to be um, the formula for outperformance, but rather those who will not only pick the right assets and portfolios, but then they will actually risk manage it in a context of changing risk appetite environment. Those are are probably the ones that will outperform. In other words, better risk managers are going to shine in, in this environment going forward um, rather than just bond or stock pickers. Risk managers versus stock pickers. That is an interesting catchphrase and, 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 and hopefully it does. Uh, but when you say, you, you, what do you mean by risk management? You mean where you would benefit from any movement and without actually owning the bond or the stock? Well, actually, it's a great question. So uh, I'm glad you asked that. So let me rephrase, because sometimes risk management uh, means different things to different people. Correct. So in, in fact, in big part of the, of the industry, there is a bifurcation, and I actually wrote a, a small paper about this, how risk-taking or, or being a stock picker, bond picker, portfolio manager, name it what you want, um, is somehow different than the risk management, i.e. risk managers are, are people that um, um, somehow reduce the risk and hedge and spend money, and, uh, and uh, the risk takers are the ones that make money. And that, that I think, is actually quite um, significant uh, uh, assumption um, and, and not the right one, in fact. Um, what I think about, when I think about risk management is it's a continuum, it's a spectrum. Risk management means we have to find the right risk and take it, so it's risk taking, that's how we start. Then we own the risk and then we do things around this risk for the duration of, uh, of the ownership. And then we end the process uh, uh, with risk disposal and monetization. So that's what risk management is. In, in my book, risk manager and portfolio manager is exactly the same person, right? So risk management, when I say risk management, is not the control function or compliance function that we have some kind of limit and somebody's going to have to say, okay, we're crossing the limit, stop the position, right? Not that, right? Um, it's part of it as well, but it's just a small part of it. Risk management essentially is being able to take, own, manage and dispose of risk in, uh, in, 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 uh, in the fashion where um, uh, we maximize essentially return for unit of risk that we take. Okay, so, you're, okay, so that, would, that would involve as well selling stock or buying bonds or whatever, but it's not, it's not just in its uh, empirical view, it's more and wholesome, you, you assign a category of risk to whatever you have and you measure the risk 
of your portfolio based on what's in it as opposed to you know as you say being a stock picker or a bond you select a bond now when you met um, earlier you talked about um, uh, we looked at credit first when you say credit are you looking at the spreads are you looking at what what category for our audience should they be focusing on or when you said that um, um, look at what's happening to the to, to credit in general um, I think corporate credit is uh, is a very uh, very good point to start um, you know sovereign government credit um, obviously as we see now can be significantly obscured by central bank policy and you know just because uh, Japanese government bonds are yielding zero does it mean that you know they really reflect the risk credit risk of, of, of Japan right or conversely can we can ask the same question about the the US or we can ask the question about the the, the European Central Bank uh, affecting German bonds for example right so take 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 those away um, and think about private credit which is but not private in the sense of illiquid private credit but rather corporate credit that is tradable with observable prices where you can you can see the issuance the, the demand and supply side and then you can you can ob observe the credit cycle from the context of uh, of uh, default patterns and uh, and financing on the margin for for the for the more flimsy and lower part of the, the uh, rating spectrum. Uh, I think this is where you you get probably the best picture of the sentiment of how credit in aggregate looks like um, for other risk assets. By the way, uh, uh, corporate credit is very closely tied, especially high yield and and uh, and lower part of the. Um, of the capital structure is very closely tied to equity. So, um, if if uh, if high yield starts cracking up, it's most likely um, equities in in companies that are basically high yield companies uh, will probably underperform as well. So, I guess what we uh, what we should do is we should wait and see what happens to the market and and and. And hopefully nothing happens, obviously. But uh, if, if if you're correct, and we start to see some some sort of correction, uh, what are so, some of the items we need to look for? Uh, what would somebody would look for? Uh, first of all, having to do with the central bank. What are you looking at? Like the bond repurchase program, the the the, the rate rate setting. What are some of the items that you're monitoring right now to give you a sense as to where this is heading? Right. So um, when I think about uh, the effect of central bank policy, um, it is really about the story that they create, right? Is the story, the image, strong enough where nobody's going to challenge the Fed, right? There's an old saying, don't fight the Fed. But the reality is we don't know whether the Fed actually has full control over the markets, right? We believe they do, but we don't know. And uh, so what I would look at is how they handle um, risk disposal from their balance sheet and how it affects the markets. Uh, rate setting obviously is a part of it as well, right? But that may be, you know, I think Fed wants to normalize rates as soon as possible, um, but they also don't want to upset the markets. 
um, these are two uh, actually contradicting kind of outcomes. So they need to balance this out pretty pretty well. And, and as long as they maintain markets' confidence in in their ability to keep control over this, then you know we all good. So what I would uh, what I would look at at the Fed is uh, how they set the rates and how they handle market sentiment from rate setting point. Um, and two, uh, how they manage uh, the um, um, reduction of their balance sheet. Um, that, that actually is, is quite significant um, uh, because the balance sheet is large and, and obviously is going to have pretty uh, significant impact on the markets not handled properly, right? So um, I'm sure they're going to be trying to be as gentle as possible. But I think they also have a desire to normalize the rates and and let the markets go on their own, um, you know, as soon as practical. You know, in the end, we've been in this in this extraordinary temporary environment for what eight years now. So mm-hmm. um, it, it seems to be a bit longer than temporary. Correct. So it's not going to. Uh to last forever. Okay, so you, you, you gave us quite a few items to look at uh, in the market and the Fed. Uh, we'll continue to monitor uh, the market and see what happens and maybe we'll, we'll, we'll touch back. Uh, touch, uh, you know, we'll, we'll discuss again uh, maybe in a few weeks to see where we are. Uh, I do note uh, your mention of the VIX. Yes, I think we should talk about this at some later date. Uh, in terms of why it's so low, what it is, and you know, where, what, what are your views uh, going forward? Any, any parting comments at this point uh, for the audience? Uh, the, 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 I think the main message that I, I am trying to convey here is that while the markets, you know, as we speak, are ending the quarter now, especially equity markets at, uh, at their highs, um, it, it really is something to consider that we are no longer supposed to expect the same kind of mechanisms that we've experienced over the several years that were propelling the markets to be there for us going forward. So, you know, whether whether people want to be a bit more, um, uh, less, I guess, the, the t- taper their risk appetite and perhaps... Uh, rebalance their portfolios or at least start paying attention to things that I was talking about so so they don't get blindsided when things start moving the other way. Point well taken. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, and as I said before, let's uh, touch base and let's follow the market. And uh, uh, I should let everyone know that they can follow you on, on LinkedIn. Uh, you've wrote a couple of interesting articles uh, and uh, they should definitely refer to it. And um, we'll... Uh, speak to you uh, at some later date thank you very much for your time and uh, we'll talk again thank you thank you for the opportunity